Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the Tuesday Night Podcast Club. As always, I'm your host Jess and this week I'm covering the Let's Go to Call podcast, one of my faves. let me just say first things first these two hosts are amazing but I say that every week because I'm a podcast connoisseur or you know nerd so the hosts are close friends and I do absolutely love them they've got big bright personalities and one of them has got the funniest laugh it's so loud and contagious it kind of reminds me of mine she said she's had some hate relating to this in the comments and stuff on the podcast. So on the off chance that she ever listens to this, I hope she knows I love a laugh and long may it continue. Our two hosts of the Let's Go to Core podcast are Kristen and Brandy. They are, I want to say, from middle America and they tell us crime-based stories in great detail with fun personalities sprinkled throughout for people like me who love the morbid topics but need a bit of a laugh to get through it. They introduce themselves every week as saying that one has a semester of law school and one has a semester of criminal justice behind them, but they're ready to go to court all the same. Let's put it out there, I'm a basic bitch. I love true crime. Enough addiction to the IT channel took me all the way through a law degree only to end up not using it whatsoever. So, my age to practice in the legal industry might have long passed me by, but my love for true crime never has. I've always said America's where it's at for the true crime, and it's often the case here on this podcast as well. It's where the crazy crimes and crazy court action happens. That's where these girls come in. So, every week they tell us a story, each that they've they've sort of ended with a crazy or wild or just flat out tragic court case if you've ever watched the IT channel like me you might have seen a program called court cam and if you have you know things get spicy in those american courtrooms right back to day one of the courtroom lives which was the state of california versus Ornthal james oj simpson so if you haven't seen that show, go and watch it. And if you have, you need to listen to this podcast stat because I promise it's what you need in your life. A thing to note is these episodes can be really long. I don't mind that at all myself. All the more content for me, although I am fully up to date with this show as a long-time listener. They usually are between two and three hours an ep and that does mean the detail and research that's gone into each story is absolutely spot on and thorough. So my usual... I'll do some little side research, sort of, doesn't stand as much here. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to split the episode into two. The first half is slightly more infuriating and makes me want to cry, rally, and then fight someone with Brandy's story, and you'll see why when I get there. And the second half, it's equally as awful, but slightly more ridiculous from Kirsten. 
So I'm going to do a brief as possible breakdown of them stories all the way up to the court cases in my own way and research. And then we'll discuss their take on the insane court cases and what came out of them that followed. So the episode I'm covering is number 197 and it's called Childhood Friends and the Kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Okay guys, strap in because this one's horrible. So it's December 2016, it's New Jersey, Sarah Sands 19, a dad's away in Florida with his new partner and Sarah's back home with the dog and going to school. At the same time, an Uber driver's crossing the nearby Route 35 bridge over the Shark River in Belmont, New Jersey, late at night. He notices an abandoned car, an automobile. Now, he's not stupid enough to stop. It could be a trap. Sadly, things like this do happen in the world that we live in, and you should always take precautions to keep yourself safe first. But this bridge was known for suicides, and something about the car just didn't look or sit right with them. So he called it into the police and went on with his night. When the police arrived, they find the car with the keys inside and no owner around. They uncovered that it registered to a 96-year-old woman called Lillian Stern. However, the car is used by a 19-year-old granddaughter, Sarah Stern. Sarah had been a miracle baby, the only child to a couple who were told that they'd never have kids. She was already a miracle before she arrived and her family absolutely adored her. Tragedy struck first when Sarah's mum died of cancer when she was still a child and left Sarah and her dad behind. Sarah had had a troubled life, so authorities immediately organised a massive search for Sarah's body in the Shark River Inlet, but it came up empty. Sarah was last seen alive with her childhood best friend Liam McKenzie. The previous day, on December the 2nd, the two, of the, the, the two of them had spent the afternoon together and went for lunch at Taco Bell. Since Liam was the last person she was with before she went missing, investigators spoke with him first at an apartment that he shared with his and Sarah's friend, Preston Taylor. In fact, they were so close, Preston had actually gone as Sarah's high school prom date, like as best friends, because all three of them literally done everything together. So Liam told investigators from the start that Sarah had suicidal tendencies and complained about her relationship with her dad and his new partner. Liam and Preston went on to assist in the search parties for Sarah or her body and after a month of investigating, nothing was found and the police were hitting a brick wall. That's when they got a massive break when a high school friend of Liam and Preston's called Anthony Curry came forward with a story the police. He said Liam had confided in him that Sarah found some old money in a house that her family owned. He then revealed a plot to kill her and take the money. He planned to choke Sarah to death, dispose of her body on the Route 35 bridge and leave a car there, making it look like a suicide. Preston would be the escape car driver and they'd get away with her. Anthony was studying filmmaking in Brooklyn high, in Brooklyn since high school and had often talked of horror movie plots with Liam so I initially thought not of the conversation other than it was like a sick joke or another idea for a movie. However, when Sarah disappeared in the exact same circumstances, Anthony knew he had to go to the police. 
So he agreed to help the police catch Liam in a confession and wired up his car, arranging a meeting with Liam where he'd ask if he went through with the plan. When Liam got in the car, he immediately asked Anthony could he feel him up to see if he had a wire on. So he obviously knew people were beginning to get onto him. However, the wires are being strategically placed around the car. So other than on Anthony's body itself, so Liam wasn't finding any urn and he just let all spill. Over the next half an hour, Liam described in graphic detail how he murdered Sarah and even timed everything with his phone so that he could still show up at work and be seen, secure an alibi. He literally expected to get at least 100000 from the money that she found. Turns out that it was just $10,000 and according to Liam it was unusable because they were old brittle bills and basically useless. Look, it turns out later that you could have had them exchanged in the bank, that's not a thing, but... Still, even if it was a hundred grand, don't even. Towards the end of the conversation, Liam says, I don't feel any different and I don't think about it. He then shared even more gruesome details about the crime, including that the murder took him six months to plan. The police had all they needed and the relevant authorities arrested both Liam and Preston the following day on the 1st of February 2017. I obviously don't need to explain how insane and cruel this is. They were her best friends. She and her dad had already lost her mum. Liam had been in Sarah's life since she was in nursery. I'm incensed and I'm trying to tell this story as calmly and as comprehensively as possible. But it's actually really upsetting. It's so, 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 so sad. So obviously this podcast is called the Let's Go to Court podcast. And the premise is the trials that come from these cases. And I think this one, more than wild, is just really tragic and so, so senseless. The money, like I say, could have been exchanged in a bank, but literally it doesn't matter how much money it is. No one's life is worth any amount of money, especially not your lifelong best friends. Liam had choked his best friend to death and felt clearly no remorse whatsoever. Despite his defence attorney calling the recorded conversation in Anthony's car a false confession, the jury still found Liam guilty. And on February the 7th of 2019, three years and six days after his first arrest, Liam McCancy was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an extra 10 years on top. So he ain't coming out. He was found guilty on all seven charges, including first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, conspiracy and desecrating human remains. Of course, when it's two culprits, as usual, from day one, these dummies, the Obviously, Preston sung like a canary, and that worked for him. He was only given 18 years in prison for hindering apprehension, robbery, and desecrating human remains. During his testimony, Preston said that Liam had told him Sarah had the type of money somebody would kill for, and he admitted to helping Liam dump Sarah's body off the bridge for a $3,000 cut of the robbery proceeds. Testifying against McCancy in exchange for the reduced sentence. Look, Liam dickhead nobody is worth no one's worth killing anybody for any amount of money that doesn't even make sense but you know what i mean that is not the type of money somebody will kill for a hundred thousand pounds you can't even buy a house for that now like what you're gonna do never work again in your life behave it's a lot of money but it's not enough to kill somebody for especially not your best mate i'm sorry no amount of money no not even a billion pounds is enough to kill somebody because human life is worth more than that I'm pissed off. 
Now, something Brandy tells us that drives me even more insane is that Liam's defence team actually argue for leniency because he'd never had any previous offences. And obviously, Kristen is as blown away as I am by this. So, so what? He'd never done anything before? Oh, well, we'll let him off with a carefully plotted murder that he committed against his best friend. Fuck off. I'm glad he never beca- I never became a lawyer because Liam can fuckity-fuck all the way off. I'm going to finish with a heartbreaking soundbite from the show why I take a five-minute cry break because this case I felt like I needed to just rattle off because it's hurting my heart. It's just one of them that's really got to me. For a much more detailed coverage of the circumstances around the life and murder of Sarah, I definitely advise you go and listen to this episode straight after this. And Sarah's body to date has never been recovered. I just keep wondering, like, what must have been going through her head. Yeah. So in his confession, I didn't include this in here, but in his confession, his videotaped confession, Mm -hmm. he said her last words were, Liam, please. Okay, so now I've calmed down a little bit. Let's do the second story. This one's from host Kristen, and it is as traumatic, but it's not as murdery, so I feel like I can breathe again. This story might get a little bit complicated because, for some unknown reason, Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra decided to name the two children after them, so everyone's called Nancy and everyone's called Frank in this story. She, obviously, is going to tell us the story of Frank Sinatra Jr. being kidnapped, they do point out that he was an adult of 19 at the time of his kidnapping, so I don't know if the term is still kidnapping or now it's abduction, but either way, it happens, and here we are talking about it. So, again, let me break down the story. So, first of all, here's to some dumb criminals. Let's just say, at the very least, Barry Keenan is unhinged with a loose grip on reality, okay? In 1963... He'd gone from a rich kid to dead-ass broke. He had a car accident in early 63 that caused a back injury that left him in chronic pain. Barry then became addicted to Picodin, muscle relaxers and tranquilizers. Now, not pointing a joke at that, the opioid crisis is as real now as it has been for a long time and his addiction led him to bankruptcy, which is when he decided to make a plan to kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. for ransom. Which, get on this, he then would invest. And later, when he was back up and running on his feet, he'll pay Frank back. And if Frank didn't want to take the money back, he'd find out Frank's favourite charity and donate it to them. Are you okay, Barry? So he'd been in infant school with Nancy Sinatra Jr., Frank and Nancy's daughter, who was a couple of years older than Frank Jr., He said that he eventually settled on Frank Sinatra's son as he knew people who were also in show business and they said that Frank Sinatra always got his own way, therefore it wouldn't really be morally wrong to put him through a couple of hours of grief over his son. Which, to that I say again, Barry, are you okay? Now look, there's a lot of contradicting stories regarding who was involved in the actual planning of the crime However, I and the hosts agree it was started and mainly conducted by Barry. However, he did go on to involve his high school friend Joe Amsler and his mother's former boyfriend John Irwin. 
down the line somewhere. So initially he decided he needed a start-up fee to commit this crime. It's like a small business. And he approached his high school friend Joe for a $5,000 loan to carry out his plans. He said it would be an investment on his friend's part if he gave him the money as he'd pay him back in a larger amount. I believe that he resisted the plan at first, but somewhere, somehow, he's out there committing kidnap on the night, so Joe's lost it too. Barry's supposedly also involved John after he'd committed the kidnapping of Frank, but we'll get there. So, after a failed attempt in both Arizona and Los Angeles to commit the kidnapping, Barry learned that Frank Jr. was heading to Lake Tahoe in Nevada to perform a concert that would be his last one before he set off to Europe. So, aware that it was the last chance Barry and Joe made the trip to Nevada. On Sunday, December the 8th of 1963, they entered Frank Jr.'s hotel room, pretending to be delivering a package. The singer was eating chicken with John Foss, the trumpet player in his band, when Keenan pulled out a gun and demanded money from the two. He and Joe tied the band member up, whose presence they hadn't anticipated, and they walked Frank Jr. out to the car. Now, this is where it actually gets insane. The host and I can't believe... What's going on? So, Barry tells John Foss not to move for 10 minutes. Now, as he gets in the car, he feels like he's forgot something. You know, like when we, like, you might forget to turn off our straighteners or something, and you just, you just know you're forgetting something. Yeah, he'd left his gun. So, he went back up to the room to get his gun, and wouldn't you know it, John Foss is already halfway across the room untied and ready to call the police. So, our Barry ties him back up and makes him promise to wait another 10 minutes this time. Barry, get yourself together, mate. Obviously, as soon as he leaves, John gets back up, calls the police and reports the kidnapping. So, long story short, Frank Senior is worried sick. The FBI are involved. Frank Junior is on a bolo, be on the lookout alert, and the roadblocks are being set up around Nevada. Obviously, the boys begin to panic and tell Frank Junior, look, it'll all be okay. Just pretend we're all having a nice little time. We're just mates. Okay, lunatic. So during this time, Frank Senior's all, give me my son, I'll give you any urn in the news, and supposedly turning down offers of help from his mates in the mob. When halfway on the boys' little road trip, they notice a roadblock. Now Frank Junior is not exactly as famous as his dad, however I imagine the police knew what he looked like. However, somehow they managed to get through this roadblock, so pff, get to work, guys. 400 miles later, they arrive at their Los Angeles hideout where Barry called his mum's ex, John Irwin. He basically tells him, in no uncertain terms, if I go down, you knew the plot, you're coming with me. So, looks like you're helping. And John turns up. So, looks like everyone's listening to Crazy Barry today, doesn't it? When he arrived, it was him who placed the phone call to Frank Sinatra Sr. on December the 10th, demanding $240,000 for the safe release of his son. On the morning of December 11th, the FBI dropped the money off at the location Erwin specified. When Barry and Joe went to pick up the money, John got nervous and released the hostage and the 19-year-old walked for a while, ending up in Bel Air, when he found a security guard to drive him to the home of his mother, Nancy. The money had been collected, Frank Jr. was home and all seemed quiet, so for a few days the kidnappers appeared to have gotten away with the crime. The host points out that nobody seemed too worried about the absolute chaos Paul Frank Jr. had gone through. So, talk about trauma. Can someone make sure he goes to therapy, please? But alas, 
As always, someone sung like a canary. John Irwin visited his brother in San Diego, who proceeded to call the police immediately after John told him what had happened. The FBI arrested all three men that day and nearly all of the ransom money was was recovered. The trial began on the 10th of February of 64 and Barry had the sheer audacity to testify that the crime was a hoax, a publicity stunt that had people tied to the family affiliated with it. The story would go on to haunt the case for years, long after it was proved to be false. Even today, people believe that Frank Sinatra Jr. had a hand in his own kidnapping. Now, for why this is let on, let's go to court. Does somebody want me to explain this mental line of sentencing? So, right. <laughs> Barry and Joe would both give life prison sentences plus 75 years. It was the maximum sentence they could possibly get, which then qualified them for psychiatric observation. And John was given 75 years. Barry claimed insanity and somehow that was reduced from life in prison for him and Joe to sentences of 25 years. And in the end, Joe and John both ended up saving three and a half years while Barry saved four and a half. What's going on? They've just got life and a 75-year sentence and they're out after three, four years. What is happening? I'm sure people get longer for having, like, a bag of weed on them in America. What is happening? Right, so... Barry was released from prison in 1968. He went on to work in the property world and by 1983, his net worth was estimated at £17 million. In 1998, he sold his story to the New Times Los Angeles and the year following its publication, in 1999, Columbia Pictures offered him and his co-conspirators £1.5 million in exchange for a film about the crime. Frank Jr. filed a case to block the deal, obviously, upon the basis of a California law that forbids criminals from profiting from the stories of the crimes. Barry then, in his late 50s, argued that the law violated his First Amendment rights and after a long legal battle and several appeals, Frank Jr. won the case. Barry, oh my God. I can't even with Barry. What do you... Are you... Your First Amendment rights? You kidnapped a man? Barry and the gang clearly traumatised Frank Jr. and continued to try and make money off him until the day he died in 2016, aged just 72, which is still so young today. And I think, you never know, like, that obviously had a profound effect on his life. So, I'm not going to talk anymore about them, the absolute scumbags. Barry's still alive today and, pff, whatever, hate you, Barry. This is... This is the problem with the perfect crime people. They always say they're so proud that they've come up with the perfect crime that they can't shut up about it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap up this week's episode. I love this show. I'm a long-time listener and I'm going to give it a four for absolutely love. The only reason I'm not giving it a five is because I do see in the grand scheme of things that some people might get a little bit antsy and bored with the length of the weekly content. I'm um, the same with films over 90 minutes long. You might want to, like, cut it halfway. Um, Not the host. Like, I love it how it is. But if you're listening and you might get a little bit distracted, you might want to listen to the first story and then the second story another time. Um, With podcasts and the sheer amount of research that goes into the retelling of such important 
wild and tragic stories in these true crime podcasts, especially this one, it means for me the show will forever be one of my faves because they do the stories so much justice. Thanks again for listening to the Tuesday Night Podcast Club. You can follow me at Tuesday Night Pod on Instagram. Please remember to rate, subscribe, follow, review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next week. Bye.